Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Bandike Undercovers, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. Heather Ann Thompson, a professor at the University of Michigan, has written the first definitive account of the infamous 1971 Attica prison uprising, the state's violent response, and the victims' decades-long quest for justice. The book, a bestseller, is called Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy. Back in September, September 9, 1971, nearly 1,300 prisoners took over the Attica Correctional Facility in upstate New York to protest years of mistreatment holding guards and civilian employees hostage during the four long days and nights that followed. The inmates negotiated with state officials for improved living conditions. On September 13th, the state abruptly ended talks and sent hundreds of heavily armed state troopers and corrections officers to retake the prison by force. In the ensuing gunfire, 39 men were killed, hostages as well as prisoners, and more than 100 were severely injured after the prison was secured. Troopers and officers brutally retaliated against the prisoners during the weeks that followed. Thompson offers an overwhelming and damning indictment of how the state of New York, from police on the ground all the way up to Governor Rockefeller's administration, handled the uprising at Attica. Despite facing resistance from New York state officials, Thompson spent over 10 years researching Attica, working her way through oral histories, letters, memoirs, and extensive interviews. In my conversation that I had recently with Heather Ann Thompson, I asked her why she decided to write a book about the Attica prison uprising. Well, I'm a historian of civil rights and of African-American history. And so, uh, you know, this is a story that scholars such as myself have always known a little bit about, but was, uh, you know, we're sort of startled to find out that there really wasn't a comprehensive history written, a lot of memoirs uh, and so forth, but no history books. So I, uh, I now see naively decided that I was going to try to write that history, not really understanding uh, that the reason there hadn't been this history uh, was because the records had partially been shut down uh, to this story. So what we knew about it was sheerly due to the persistence of the survivors to keep telling their story. Mm-hmm. Now, you write in the introduction to the book about uh, these these two very lucky breaks that you got as you were attempting to, to write the book. Can you elucidate what were those lucky breaks which were so important in your research? Well, in part, um, I was never uh, certain where all of the Attica documents were. I knew where the state of New York had kept its documents, that it was pretty much barring anyone from really seeing. Uh, but I wasn't sure, I wasn't persuaded that there weren't copies of these or maybe the originals of some of these. And so I began a journey to find out uh, where there might be more Attica documents and happened uh, upon a, a courthouse in upstate New York where some had just been transferred. I don't think that they really understood uh, the employees, what they had. And that was a really pivotal uh, turning point for the book because in that enormous, uh, just a wall full of records, were um, really important documents indicating what the state of New York knew 
uh, to what extent it was culpable and to what extent it had, it had absolutely created much of the damage and the chaos and, and even the bloodshed at Attica. So that was a, a really lucky break. Um, those documents, incidentally, are, uh, have been removed. Um, and then another was that the state police, after uh, 40 years, turned over to the state museum a ton of art artifacts uh, from Attica that have also been now are also off limits, but I was able to help look, uh, help catalog those and look at those for a brief moment, which was really helpful to me. Let's go back a bit. Give us the geography. And I, I was surprised by this. It looks like Ann Arbor, you can drive from Ann Arbor to Attica. It's closer than Attica to New York City. I guess I'm just so mistaken. I always thought of Attica, the city and the prison being, oh, a little bit up the Hudson River from New York City. But that's really not the case, is it at all? No, no. It's In fact, it's very far from New York, which is significant to the story because, of course, all of the policing, uh, as it is today, the policing was disproportionately um, in urban neighborhoods, black and brown neighborhoods in um, places like the Bronx or, you know, Bed-Stuy, wherever. And so all of the guys inside of Attica are coming from New York City, um, some from Buffalo, some from Rochester, but overwhelmingly from New York and at New York City. And so, you know, they're being shipped far, far away to this upstate, tiny, tiny town uh, of Attica where this prison exists. Not all that far from Buffalo, looks like. Right. Very close to Buffalo, in fact, which is why later on, uh, when there are some trials related to Attica, they are in Buffalo, and it was actually in the Erie County uh, which is Buffalo, the Erie County Courthouse, that I happened upon those those records that were a real game-changer writing the book. What kind of criminals? What was, was, was Attica a maximum security prison? Was this a place for the, the worst of the worst? Or was this like a lot of petty, you know, what a lot of us think are now pretty petty drug crimes or kind of mm-hmm. everything? What, who, who was in Attica at that time in the early 70s? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question because actually um, – you know, Attica connotes today the, the worst of the worst, as you say. Uh, it's a maximum security facility, and certainly in popular culture, Attica has come to mean, uh, you know, the, the most brutal of all prisoners. But in 1971, um, and as is also true today, I want to add, um, the, the nation has a very skewed idea of who's actually behind bars. Um, back in 1971, there were of course, people there for very dangerous offenses. But there was also a ton of young, young people, you know, 18 years old, 19 years old, there on parole violations. Um, there were also uh, a ton of folks there for uh, crimes related to property uh, because they were uh, drug addicts, you know, should have been treated in the public health system. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's a mixed bag, and and, um, and that is the group of people that, that basically come together across political lines and barriers of language and, and uh, you know, across racial barriers and, and stand together for basic human rights. No prison is a country club or a nice place to live or hotel, but the conditions at this prison, it, it's just... Uh, it makes me ashamed to live in America to, to read about <laughs> oh my, what yeah. these prisoners had to what what they had to deal with. I mean, uh, I, even the most conservative, far right wing person, I don't know, would, uh, would look at the conditions they had to live in and go, this is a this is insane. This, this is just not right in the United States of America. 
Well, and in part, um, one of the reasons why folks on the outside feel that way is because they've never really seen the inside of prison. Um, you know, prisons are closed institutions. They are so far away from uh, where so many people live. And of course, this is a real tragedy because these are public institutions. Uh, we pay for them. We trust them. And indeed, when you look closely, you see that not, again, not just in 1971, I would argue actually that prisons are worse today than they were in 1971. And they were abysmal. Um, you know, the medical care was so terrible that people died uh, under the care of these doctors. Uh, they lost their teeth because, which, of course, you know, then didn't get replacement teeth and so couldn't eat uh, because there was uh, insufficient dental care. They had, um, you know, one square of toilet paper a day, um, insufficient soap, uh two quarts of water to wash themselves, their cells, uh, and drink a day. Um, so, you know, it, it, yes, it's very barbaric. And that's why uh, people are often surprised to see what they were asking for uh, was so basic. Yeah, that, my next question, Tell what happened in, in 71? What, what caused this uprising? Obviously, the abysmal conditions, but what, what did the pr- prisoners want to do? I guess I'm really surprised, too, in a way, like, like this, was, this was done as much as something like this can be done in a reasonably organized fashion, and the things that they were asking for, a lot of, a lot of them were, it seemed, ex- seemed extremely reasonable, like, like that, not that outrageous in terms of what they wanted or what they demanded. Yes, well, and and I think, again, the surprise here is that they first began by uh, asking for these things in a way that shows that they had great faith in the system. I mean, there's so many ironies here. They, They petitioned. Uh, you know, the, the, the governor, I mean, sorry, the uh, Department of Corrections, they wrote letters to state senators. Uh, they essentially were begging uh, and working through the system for help. When they are totally ignored, though, of course, people get much more, uh, you know, frustrated and, and they get angry. But even still, Attica happens, it, it jumps off, not because uh, it was a planned, you know, a conspiracy uh, rebellion. It was, it happened because man Management, in its usual kind of tone-deaf and aggressive fashion, decided to retaliate against some prisoners from an incident the night before, failed to tell its own workforce, we were guards, uh, what it was planning to do, and ended up locking uh, a bunch of prisoners and guards in this tunnel where they all panic, and that's actually what touches this off. Uh, But what is uh, remarkable is that then turns into very quickly uh, an organized protest where the men uh, stand together, they elect representatives out of their cell blocks to, to negotiate, they bring in, they ask for outside observers to come oversee uh, their negotiations, and for four days the world watches because the media is there as this drama plays out, and, and that is all uh, fine until suddenly uh, uh, the state of New York decides to retake the prison with force. And who made that decision ultimately? Was that Nelson Rockefeller? Yeah, the governor at the time was Nelson Rockefeller, and ultimately it was his call. But when you uh, when you get into the book, you quickly realize that... Um, that there was probably no other option in his mind. He was determined to retake this prison with force, even though everyone on the ground who could see the troopers getting angrier and angry outside could see them passing out weapons 
indiscriminately, not recording serial numbers. Uh, they could see them taking off their identifying badges before they went in, that this was going to be a massacre. And, and that is the word that they used when they talked to the governor, and he was undeterred. Uh, I actually learned that uh, the hostages that they end up killing, in addition to the prisoners, uh, they knew they were gonna, that they knew hostages were going to die. And they did it anyway. Tell you. You mentioned the role of uh, the, the the press and and various uh, mediators who are trying to uh, help get this uh, resolved peacefully. And I, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about the the late New York Times reporter Tom Wicker, who really uh, played an important role and is is mentioned quite a bit in your book. Yes, he was one of the observers, and the prisoners asked him to come in to help oversee negotiations because he had written some very powerful uh, columns in support of, you know, again, these basic prison rights. Uh, And he is on the scene. He is traumatized. I interviewed him actually years and years ago. uh, And, I mean, he completely broke down in our discussion this many years later because uh, he was traumatized that he couldn't stop the bloodshed. And uh, yet his own paper... um, uh, helped to spin what became a, a set of lies about Attica. Uh, uh, the prison guard, I'm sorry, the prison officials stood outside of the prison after they retook it with such force uh, and had killed prisoners and hostages, and they told the nation that the prisoners had killed the hostages. And that went out on the front page of the New York Times, the L.A. Times, and every AP paper in the country. And so, of course, in that moment, the nation hardens. It, it, it turns against prisoner rights with dire implications for the future of criminal justice policy in this country. How many guards, how many people did, did the prisoners during the Attica uprising kill? Who did, I mean, what, 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 what harm did they do to guards? Well, it's, well that's, it's actually remains to this day um, a point of a, a bit of... Uh, mystery. Uh, There was one guard and his life ended very tragically in the first few minutes of the riot before it becomes a rebellion because he is overrun. He is in the center of the prison. He has the keys to the, uh, the, all the various tunnels and cell blocks. And he is overrun by, you know, hundreds and hundreds of men and he is kicked and he is beaten. And ultimately he will die of his injuries to his head. Um, I say a mystery because the state of New York really didn't have a clue who had actually dealt the fatal blow or even uh, uh, really any of the blows. And um, But what they did know was that when the prisoners were, uh, when the uh, state police went in, that they shot and killed 39 uh, prisoners and hostages alike, and they severely wounded 128 people total. Mm-hmm. And all of this was whitewashed at the time. Not, none of this was revealed. The truth was revealed at the time. Well, they, they said the prisoners killed the hostages. And there are a few real heroes in this story. And one of them was a local coroner who uh, could see with his own eyes that everybody had been shot to death and went public and said that. And uh, for his troubles, he was hounded for the rest of his life. The Rockefeller administration actually hired two other pathologists to try to uh, say something differently, um, which, of course, they didn't. They were professional. But, again, the lies told about who created the massacre at uh, Attica, uh, you know, lived on. I mean, to this day, folks in the country believe the prisoners are the ones that that, uh, 
slit the throats of the hostages. And that is not true. The, the prisoners did not do that. And the prisoners, none of them had any guns? They, they didn't have any guns? Not a one. Not, not a one. How long did you spend on writing this book and doing research, Heather? It's just extraordinary the amount of research you've put into this book. No, thank you so much. Well, it, it was a journey. I mean, uh, it was about 13 years from start to finish. And uh, and again, I, you know, I just want to stress that that is because in order to recreate not just the, the uprising, which is actually only the first probably third of the book, uh, it was really to piece together what happened then, uh, what happened that no law enforcement was ever indicted, but yet they went after 62 prisoners for what had happened at Attica. Uh, I walk you through the criminal trials, and then, of course, the guards and the hostages who were so badly treated by the state, they don't give up. So they have a 40-year fight for justice and to be heard, uh, which I also chronicle. So it was a, it was a, a lot of moving parts, uh, but made much more difficult because the state was sitting on so many records it wouldn't release. What's, what's the deal with mass incarceration in the United States? Why, why, why is it like the, the fetish to, to put people in jail, especially, you know, if you're Hispanic or, or, or if you're right. black? I mean, it's just what what is the problem with it? It's just part well, of the, uh, I don't get it. Well, in part, what I think I'll, I say uh, ultimately, and I, I, I probably don't spend enough time on it, but at the end of the book, I really make the point that uh, this was a policy choice to do this. It was in response to the civil rights movement and events like Attica, uh, because they're spun the way they are, um, you know, the public doesn't hear that law enforcement needs to be reined in. Uh, it hears that these barbaric prisoners have not only uh, murdered hostages, but they've castrated one of them. And, I mean, this, this just has an incalculable effect on uh, souring the nation on the idea that prisoners are people. Uh, and so, you know, we, we begin the biggest prison buildup in American history that we are, I hope, starting to revisit now. Thanks for listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers and our interview with Heather Ann Thompson about Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library.